Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning is from Proverbs 18, verses 6 through 7. A fool's lips walk into a fight, and his mouth invites a beating. A fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are a snare to his soul. This morning I would like to look at our words and how they impact us, our neighbor, and what they say about our own hearts. In the verses from Proverbs, we see the power of our mouths, how our words can serve to encourage and comfort our neighbor, or also bring great harm and long-lasting destruction to our relationships. For the fool, his words lead to destruction, inviting fights, and ultimately destroying his own soul. As God's children, we are called to examine ourselves to see where our words have provoked those around us, to see where our words have been sinful or have led to sin in ourselves or in others. Our day-to-day lives bear this out as we see our children interact with one another using words to play and at times make fun or manipulate those around them. Our interactions as adults follow the same patterns as we so easily move from kind words to words of gossip with our co-workers, moving into harsh words spoken um, to our children and our spouses. This leads us to examining our own hearts. As Jesus says in Luke 6, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. As redeemed children of God, washed by the blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and filled with the Holy Spirit, let us speak words from a heart that has been made new, words that do not lead to ruin and shame, but words that lead to life full of love and truth, encouraging one another in the bond of peace. This reminds us of our needs to confess our sins. Oh, come, let us worship. turn back now in our Bibles to Titus chapter 2, taking probably four messages here on Titus. We have had two the last two weeks in chapter 1, taking a bit of a longer look at the elders. And now we'll take a week each on chapter 2 and 3. Titus chapter 2. Again, hear God's infallible word. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. That the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. The older women, likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. That they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded, in all things showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity 
that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but this word of God stands forever. And God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the words that you have revealed to us through the living word, your Son. We have fallen far short of your glory, but as you have summoned us together, you have cleansed us, and you are now consecrating us, setting us apart, purifying us by your word. We pray, Lord, that uh, the image... uh, of you stamped upon us that has been so scarred and marred that you would restore it, restore the image of your son Jesus in your people. Use your word to do this. Even now we pray. Amen. Well, I've uh, been at a, a conference in Chicago for the last half of this week, which doesn't happen too often that I'm uh, gone kind of right up to the last second. And so two things about that. One is there's less preparation in this sermon than usual. So if it feels different, let me know. And the other is there, I, it was an extremely stimulating conference. There, there's all kinds of things I want to share with you. Don't worry, it won't be a two-hour sermon or anything. But, but there's a lot of... Um, illustrations and things from that conference that I've uh, snuck into this sermon. So that'll be possibly a bit unusual. But let's uh, remember the, what we're doing here is it's the How Shall We Now Live uh, sermon series. We're trying to uh, address how we're called to live as Christians uh, in various areas of life. And we've uh, looked a bit at Ephesians, uh, our uh, individual virtue, and then our family life. Uh, and uh, also the church in um, the beginning of Titus. So uh, that's kind of the three areas we've been focusing on. It's very likely that I'll uh, address uh, Reformation themes on Reformation Sunday, and then the Sunday after that is the Sunday before the election, which sometimes this year it may result in uh, how now shall we live in the, in the public sphere uh, type of message. So that's kind of what I'm thinking where we're going uh, before Advent comes around. But uh, let's look at Titus chapter 2 here. The idea, the, the theme I have in the message, uh, since God's grace affects our past, present, and future, Titus needs to teach the church to live rightly now and to hope for Christ's appearing. And what I'm doing there is trying to fit every major point of the, of the chapter into one sentence. Uh, sometimes that works better than others. But Titus needs to teach individual virtue. That's the first point that Paul makes here, uh, verse 1. As for you, right, Paul's been talking to Titus about what, how elders should be. Uh, and now he makes a bit of a contrast and says, okay, let's set that aside a second. As for you, what are you supposed to be doing, Titus? Besides appointing elders, as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Speak the things proper for sound doctrine. 
So the major point in this is actually one that's not made too much, right? We look at over half of this chapter is all exhortations about how people are supposed to live. But if you take the grammar, it's act, the main point is actually, Titus, make sure that you teach these things. So the main point is actually, make sure that there are teachers in the church who are teaching sound doctrine and right living. That's, that's the major point. Uh, and that's something we're, we're, I'll spend as much time on as, as Paul does. So the quantity is less on that. But keep that in the background as we go through specifics on how we're to live. The point is that these things are supposed to be taught publicly in the church by church leaders. So Titus needs to teach this. And, and Paul brings that up at the beginning and the middle and the end of this chapter. It's rather interesting. Here, the very first verse. Then if you look in verse 7 and 8, it's the same there. He all of a sudden uh, switches from exhorting the young men. Then all of a sudden, Paul's talking to Titus again, saying, make sure you're an example to them. And then at the very end, the last chapter, uh, verse 15, speak these things. Exhort and rebuke. So it's rather interesting. Beginning, middle, and end of the chapter, uh, Paul brings that major point back out. So that's what Paul's telling to Titus. But, but the major quantity, the, most of what he actually says is, teach them this list. Here's the things to teach. So that's what we'll look at next. So verse 2 through 6, we have specifics for various stations in life. And let's walk through those together. Uh, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith. The older women, likewise, reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. Uh, always remember, it's, it's usually the case when Scripture addresses a specific kind of person, if that be wives or husbands, or here we have older men, younger men, um, young women, bond servants, it's usually the case when Scripture does that, that, that God is pointing to certain uh, peculiar temptations that people in those situations have. I've said this before, I think, when God tells husbands to love their wives, it's because husbands have a particularly hard time doing that sometimes. It's easier for us to respect all the work our wives are doing, but to show them love and affection is a bit more difficult for husbands. Same thing here, I believe. Older men and women uh, need to be reverent. And I think the point here, I've seen this in a couple of occasions, with older folks, sometimes the, the social filters can fly off. I don't know if you've noticed that, right? There's, they, they have a tendency, say, to talk too much or to be too critical. But, but over the years, they've restrained that. But as they get older and older, that those restraints, those filters can fall away, right? So that's, that, that's something that uh, Titus here needs to watch for in older people. Keep those filters on. Make sure that you continue being reverent. Don't get slanderous, etc. cetera. Uh, sound in faith, uh, which means not flying off the handle. Uh, every word and action measured and prudent. At the conference, we were talking, there was a group of about six uh, CREC pastors, and we would hang out between sessions. And we were talking about various pastors uh, that we knew and assessing things. And at one point, one, one of the pastors, he's, he was talking about another pastor friend that he knew, and he said, you know, I've, in all the years that I've worked with this man, I have never heard him say a rash word. And that was, that was quite a comment. Uh, and that's what uh, Paul's getting at here. Sound in faith. Um, uh, women are called not to, sl not to slander, but to teach. And this goes to uh, Tim's call to confession this morning as well. Use your words not for gossip, 
but for building up the next generation. Right? And that's not easy, but you, you get to a point in life where most people around you are younger than you than they are older. I'm starting to get to that point, maybe not quite there yet, but it's a strange feeling. And all of a sudden, you're used to having been in the peanut gallery and taking cheap shots from the sidelines at people, but you need to make an adjustment and start thinking of yourself as in the center, and your people are all around you, and you need to think of important, encouraging things to say to them. Whatever's being said, you don't so much react to, to those things. You initiate important things. That's verse 4, what Paul is telling Titus to admonish uh, the older women to teach the younger women, teach them to love their husbands, love their children. Uh, that's an important uh, dynamic that we want to have in our fellowship together as believers, initiating edifying conversation like that. Uh, especially teach the young women here, verse 4. Notice that Titus isn't the only one teaching in the church. Uh, that's not what's meant when the major point is, Titus, make sure you teach all these things. Others are teaching each other too. Older women are teaching uh, younger women, probably uh, back in Titus's day, more organically. I doubt that they had formed a, a, a ladies' meeting class back then, but, but either way is fine. Uh, find ways to uh, have that format. That they be discreet and chaste. Here again, younger women can be brash and put themselves on display in ways that they should not. So Paul tells Titus, teach them to be discreet and chaste. Homemakers. A woman's usual domain is in the home. It isn't an absolute rule. There are exceptions when she isn't a wife and mother yet or mothering isn't a full-time duty anymore. Uh, but that's a general rule. Obedient to husbands. Uh, you don't want wives to subvert what, what, what she knows he wants. Be open to his direction. Uh, as we saw last time in Titus 1, uh, men are called to manage their households well. So wives are called to work together to help him do this. And we do these things to, to not blaspheme the word of God, uh, which means we're called to live distinctly from the world. Uh, there are people out there without Jesus Christ who live lives without hope, full of loneliness and depression or illusions. And they live to take, and they don't live, and, and, and they live to, to get, and they don't live to give. And that's something that I uh, heard in the conference that was very fascinating. They were discussing uh, evil and wickedness and the nature of it. And one speaker said that when you look through Scripture at the way evil started and prime examples of it, take like Eve and Saul and David, the way Scripture describes it is all of them took. Eve took the fruit. And when Israel gets a king, Samuel says, I'm warning you, your king is going to take. He's going to take this from you, he's going to take that from you, he's going to take that from you. And then when David comes along and sees Bathsheba, what he does is he takes her. We're, we're, we're taking people in a sinful, selfish way. And, and we live amongst people that do that. And we're called to live distinct lives. Uh, in unbelieving marriages, there's this constant negotiation. How much can I take from you before you will protest? Uh, and, and if we do marriage that way, the word of God is blasphemed. The world needs to see a biblical way of life instead. 
that, and that's the job of young wives and husbands and obedient children and older couples too, where we're giving our lives for others. So that takes us to verse, let's see, five and six. Verse six, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. Here's another one I think is applies to young men. Take this as an example, young men that you're probably prone or tempted to not be sober-minded. And I think one thing he's getting at here is young men can be very idealistic, have big dreams, right? Older men, they say, can get drunk on power. Younger men, I think, can get drunk on plans of what they're going to do, what, 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 they're, what they've got planned. The next 30 years, it's going to be this, and it's going to be great at year 20. And, and we have to, it's part of God's design, of course, that we plan and do and act. But, but pride of mind can take that and corrupt it. And you get wrapped up in grand plans and, and then all of a sudden you don't do what you need to do today, perhaps. So uh, take your limits into account when you plan uh, and God's providence. Um, so there you have various exhortations uh, directed at uh, various people. You have the same in verse 9. I'll skip down there for a moment. Uh, bond servants. Here you have a, a, an ancient economy context where you have slaves who are working in household to pay off debt, for example. And so Paul addresses them. And uh, the parallel, I think, to employers and employees works just fine. We can take this as an employee direction. Be a good employee. Don't, don't be cranky. Don't be stealing. Uh, be faithful to the cause of the organization you're working for. Um, be, uh, be supporting the mission uh, is the point there in verses 9 and 10. Uh, and, and Titus, um, so there you have various uh, stations in life addressed. One that's interestingly not mentioned here is husbands and wives. I found that fascinating, except for the, the young wives there. Nothing to husbands here. Uh, and we got some of that at the conference, which was quite uh, good. Uh, one of the, the speakers, uh, they, they, um, sometimes they're clergymen, they're, they're pastors who, who are used to speaking directly and in imperatives. It's something that in the Reformed stream we uh, do a bit less of. Right? We, we preach the gospel, the good news. That's the main thing we're proclaiming from the pulpit. And out of that flows how we ought to live. Right? But, but, but sometimes because we're, we're so focused on getting the gospel right, which is good, we do a little bit less on the do, do this, don't do that kind of thing. Right? So it was interesting to hear one of the speakers say to the husbands, Husbands, when you're called to love your wife, Make sure your wife knows every moment that you love her. <laughs> and he said this too. He said, whenever you're in the house together and whenever you pass your wife in the same room or pass by her, never neglect to give her some kind of gentle, loving touch. thought that was an interesting uh, exhortation. Just something else for us to consider. It's rather in line with the, the, these first 10 verses. There are specific things that we ought to be looking for in how we live, depending on our station in life. Again, in 7 and 8, we already mentioned this, but here's where Titus, uh, Paul takes a parenthesis to say, and Titus, make sure you're being a good example here. Uh, that's a, a pattern I could point out, that Titus, as the church leader, is an example to all, 
But notice that he puts it in the uh, young men category. I think especially church leaders are examples to the young men. Uh, Show yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility. Uh, So need to be an example also, not to them, but also, verse 8, to one who is an opponent, that they may be ashamed. That's interesting. And I think you look back at chapter 1, verse 10, and you see there are many insubordinate, idle talkers. The church was already dealing with difficulties within, uh, but, but it could also be applied to those without. Uh, those who might want to oppose the gospel, um, try to uh, intimidate or take down a church. Uh, church leaders need to be a good examples so that there's nothing that they can point to in a scandalous way. So that uh, th- takes us through verse 10. Now, verse 11 is the, the sharp left turn. So why live this way? And you see the little word for at the beginning. That's always a key word, uh, or usually is. If you see that at the beginning of a paragraph, there you have a transition. Why live this way? Because the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. Because God's grace has come. Now this is fascinating. Paul usually gives the gospel first, and then how to live second. Right? You see that in most of his letters. Uh, Ephesians 1 through 3, it's all about the gospel. And then Ephesians 4 to 6, it's all, so live this way. He flips it around in Titus, it seems. And he, he tells him, appoint elders, make them sure they're like this. Teach everybody to be like this. Because the gospel. The order is flipped, which, which I find fascinating. Why the other way? I'm not really sure. Uh, an assumption, a, a, a clue that I think, uh, a hunch I have, is that Titus is a church leader. He knows the gospel. This letter is going to Titus, who is a pastor, right? Uh, other letters are going to the church, uh, which needs to have the gospel emphasized more. Titus knows the gospel. He still needs to hear it. Paul still puts it in. There are times we need to do this too, I think. We, we, we need to think to ourselves as Christians, I need to finish this assignment. I need to wash the dishes. I need to deny that temptation. I need to get back to work. Whatever it is, right? Those are the specific exhortations, things we need to do. But we also have to, always have to go on to verse 11. Why do we need to do those things? Not first because it'll help others. Not first because it'll save me from embarrassment. Not first because it'll keep the paychecks coming so I can feed my family. No, I need to do these things first of all because the grace of God has appeared in Jesus Christ. That's why. And we'll see this again when we get to verse 14. So so Paul makes that turn. He connects all these exhortations. How are we supposed to live? Why are we supposed to live this way? Why are we here at church on this Sunday morning? Because the grace of God has appeared. It's all about the gospel. If you don't connect your right living to the gospel and the grace of God, then, then you've lost the, the, the gospel. You've lost it. Right living by itself saves no one. And here, let's consider James 2. I had us read that, uh, and that text is always awkward for us Reformed people. What are we doing reading this right up to Reformation Sunday? Well, James is saying God gives God's grace leads us to... Leads to him giving us faith, right? God's grace leads to him giving us faith, and our faith leads to us doing good works. That's what James is saying. 
And James says that our works justify us, not faith alone. That famous verse in verse 24 that led Martin Luther to call the book of James an epistle of straw. He did not like this. Uh, And it it kind of rubs us the wrong way because we believe we're justified by faith alone. And there, right in black and white, it says the opposite. What are we supposed to do with that? Well, I'm of the school of thought that James here means uh, by justify, James means shown to be just to other people or maybe even to ourselves. Shown to be just. So take an example. You have uh, two teenage boys. This is totally hypothetical. Maybe. Two teenage boys who are wrestling and they're roughhousing in the living room. Right? And they've been warned about this before. You do this too much, you get, this gets out of hand, it's going to be trouble. Uh, but they do it again and they knock over and break mom's glass case cabinet. They're instantly sorry. They tell mom they'll replace it. And they resolve to go buy one after work the next day. Right? Now in James's sense of justify... They are not yet justified because they didn't show to mom that they would do that because the new cabinet isn't there yet. I think that's what James means by justify. Shown to others to be just, to set it right, to be really repentant. That's what James means when he says faith without works is dead. You've got to follow through to, to show others that your faith is real, that your repentance is real. They've said they're going to do it. They haven't done it yet. Now, if they're in a tragic car accident before they replace the cabinet and they die, does that mean they aren't going to heaven? No. Because the way we usually think of justify is it's God that does the justifying based on our faith. And he knows if it's real before and apart from our works. Right? Like the thief on the cross, I think that's a good example. He has very little opportunity to, to uh, be justified in James's sense, right? But, um, but he is justified, because, and God knows he is, and so Jesus declares it so. I bring this up for two reasons. One is because it's October, it's Reformation Month, and we're leading up to Reformation Sunday in a couple of weeks. And two, because whenever we see imperatives emphasized in the Bible... We tend to fall into moralism and just straight-up obedience, and we forget the grace of God involved in the process, right? It's God's grace that made those teenagers repentant and determined uh, to give restitution. It's also God's grace, I would say, by the way, that the cabinet broke, and we forget about that sometimes. The, the, The cabinet breaking, that exposed their sin. It made them realize their disobedience actually hurt somebody else. And that's God's grace to bring negative things like that into our lives, to bring us up short and say, oh, because else we, don't, we just keep on going. Anyway, God's grace is, it permeates these kinds of situations. God is often teaching us something in that way. So uh, this is why we live this way, because the grace of God has appeared. Now, verse 12, 13, and 14 are just precious verses, and see them in the, in the past, present, and future tenses. It's quite fascinating that way. Verse 12 really summarizes everything we've had in chapter 2 so far. It's a present tense thing, right? Teaching us that we have to deny worldly lusts, that we should live soberly. So the grace of God teaches us how to live right now. 
right? The gospel is, is driving us, compelling us uh, to right living in the present. But it does two other things as well. Verse 13, looking to the future. For the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus. Oh, that's wonderful. Future hope. Looking for the hope. Uh, our lives should be dripping with anticipation of what God is going to do. And I'm not just talking there about tomorrow or next week or next year, but as Paul says to Titus, what he's going to do, what it's going to look like at the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus. That's a wonderful phrase, glorious appearing. That's how the second coming is often described by Paul, the appearing of Jesus. In our circles, we're very careful not to be world deniers, uh, Gnostics, which is good. We don't want to try to get away from this earth as if it's tainted in itself. It isn't. But in leaning that way, sometimes we don't lean enough toward the glorious appearing of Jesus. He is coming. He's going to remake the world. The world is fallen. There are things that need to be set right. And he's going to come and do that. So that's future. The, the grace of God points us to the future. And it points us also, verse 14, to the past. Who gave himself for us. He's pointing here back to the cross. Jesus gave himself. He didn't take. He gave. He didn't indulge himself. So you can go right back to the exhortations and think there again. Young women, don't manipulate people to take what you want. Instead, give yourself for your husband. Young men, don't take all you can, whatever it costs others. Give yourself for your family, for your spouse. Older people, don't just sit back and take, figuring you're owed it all now. Keep giving to the next generation in any way that you have opportunity. Jesus, of course, gave himself in a unique way that he might redeem us. And notice what it says, from every lawless deed. He, he fully dealt with our guilt. One of the best uh, speakers at the conference uh, spoke on identity politics. And he's a political theorist and theologian at uh, Georgetown, a professor there. I, it was so good, I, I don't usually do this, but I bought his book and had him even sign it and we talked for a while. Uh, he called identity politics a Christian heresy, which I believe is right. Identity politics promises to redeem us. Uh, the way he put it, the, the mainline church decades ago gave up on the idea of atonement for sin and just preached a God of love. So what did we expect people to do with their guilt then? And what they've done is turn to identity politics. Here's the religion of wokeness. If you renounce your past, your nation, your God, your family, if you signal all the right virtues of the rainbow flag or BLM, then you have atoned. And you are one of the pure ones. And you're not one of those stained as oppressors. It's an atonement without the cross, trying to deal with the guilt that we all know is within us. It perfectly explains what's going on in our world today. Only Christianity has found a way, to put it from an earthly point of view, to fully resolve our guilt problem. 
right? Our guilt problem was so bad that God had to come down himself and fix it. And he did. And he spoke of of, uh, scapegoats quite a bit too. Humans universally find scapegoats for their sins, right? From the very beginning, in Genesis 3, Adam, what does he do? He says, it was the woman. There's scapegoat number one. In the very next phrase, whom you gave to me. So Adam blames everybody around him except for himself. And that's what we've all been doing ever since. Scapegoating. Eve said it was the snake. In the French Revolution, they said it was the nobility. Marx said it's the bourgeois. It's the conventional middle class. Today, our scapegoats are sometimes our parents, our slave-holding founding fathers, those, the oppressive white hetero men. So we cancel them unless they say the right thing to advance the revolution. They're trying to get rid of their own guilt while rejecting Jesus. That's what's going on. And this is never going to solve the guilt problem. There's only one innocent scapegoat who takes away the sins of the world. And Paul mentions that here in verse 14. He redeems us from every lawless deed. So stop blaming others for your sins. Admit them to God and trust the scapegoat that he provided. That's the basic gospel message. Jesus gave himself not only to redeem us, but to purify us, it says in verse 14 as well. That's why I read Deuteronomy 7. I love that passage. God has set you apart as his his precious people. The point wasn't just to get them out of Egypt. Now you're free. Great. Now do what you want. No. The point is now to be a pure people, to be a holy people. And that's what takes us back to being zealous for good works. It's like Ephesians 2.10, right? We're uh, saved to do good works. We are God's workmanship. Uh, We're made, appointed to do them. So we're saved for a purpose, to be the holy, the fruitful people that he means us to be. And in the last verse, again, uh, Paul comes back to Titus, teach this stuff. And the last sentence always bothers me. I think I finally figured it out this week. Let no one despise you. That's always bothered me. How can you get, how can you make someone not despise you? (laughs) That's almost impossible to do. What is he talking about? One of the speakers at the conference was Jack Phillips. And if you know him, he was the uh, cake baker in Colorado who went to the Supreme Court because he wouldn't bake the cake for the the gay couple, right? And he he told some of his story. He, He could not help but have people despise him. The very afternoon after he turned down uh, that couple, he started getting harassing phone calls. And they were incessant every day, every hour, angry, yelling, cursing. People even got a death threat at one point. Sometimes when you do the right thing out there, you're going to be despised. So what does he mean? I had this too, by the way, actually. I just wrote an editorial for the local, one of the local papers and got a, lot, a fair bit of abuse back on Facebook, you know, all caps, shame on you, pastor, bigot, all, all kinds of things. Uh, desp- despising will come. I think the answer to the question here, though, is Paul is talking to Titus, and he's talking about what to do in the church, right? I think Paul probably means don't let anyone in the church despise you. 
in the world, that's going to happen. But in the church, there's a bit more uh, ability to keep this from happening. Titus, if you have church people who despise you and your leadership as pastor or elder, then there's got to be some kind of change. Someone needs to change, either you or the person, or someone needs to go, either you or the other people. John had to deal with this too. In 3 John 9, he talks about diatrophies. He says diatrophies is not receiving us. Diatrophies was rejecting the apostles, and in a power play, he was trying to push out the apostles' disciples out of the church. He was despising them. And John says, when I come, I will deal with this. <laughs> Rather ominous, right? The faithful can't just let that happen in the church. The faithful need to find a way to continue preaching and teaching the gospel, correcting false teaching to those who will listen. So Titus's job is to teach all of this. And to do so, I'll close with this one. Uh, teach these things, exhort and rebuke, with all authority. To do so with authority. Realize in the Great Commission that God commands us to teach and disciple the nations. Right? And to do so because he has all authority. So in, in simply making that statement, Jesus has authorized, he has deputized his church to baptize and to teach the nations into his ways with his authority. We're, we're not just spouting our own opinions about how we think people ought to live here. We believe God has told us and we're just relaying the information. That's very important. It's God's authority, not mine, not this church's. Not, not, that's, that's a misunderstanding that the world often has. Uh, so Titus has a specific task on Crete to do this. And church leaders today have the same full-time task. All of us also today have a specific task today. Some, maybe you see it in the text today specifically. Maybe it's a bit uh, different. But th this coming week you have that same task. It probably isn't full-time evangelism and living uh, like we see here in Paul telling Titus what to do. Maybe your job isn't to appoint elders uh, or, or to um, uh, preach the gospel uh, to crowds, but you do have a specific task, uh, living in God's ways, and that will be a distinctive aroma and light in a dark world. So God's grace has affected our past, our present, and our future, so we need to teach uh, the church to live rightly and to hope for Christ's appearing according to the gospel. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us this word. Thank you that you uh, not only redeem us uh, from the bondage of Egypt, from the, the consequences and the guilt of our sins, but you also, Lord, uh, show us the way to go. You give us clear, specific things that help us to understand how you want us to live. We thank you for that. We ask that as we, uh, uh, as we seek to live and strive for righteousness, that you would, uh, by your Spirit, give us that strength, that resolution, that moral courage that we need in the moment. Thank you, Lord, for uh, your redemption of us by the blood of Jesus. And thank you that you have that made us your people. Help us to live like it. All this we pray in the name of Jesus, and we sing as he taught us to.
Lord's Supper is a feast of remembrance and of communion and of hope. As we talk about past, present, and future, that same thing happens here at the table. We come remembering that Jesus Christ came into this world. He was incarnate as a baby in a manger. He lived the life we should have lived in obedience and faithfulness to God. He died on the cross to take our sins away. He was raised to new life for us. We remember all that here at this table. We come in communion as well, in the present tense, gathered together as we look around, see one another. Again, I exhort you, I like the practice of when we're eating the bread, feel free to look around a little bit and look at everybody else chewing as you're chewing. There's a communion that we have together. We're partaking of Christ together. That there's a real communion there with Christ himself as he sits at the right hand of the Father right now in this moment and with one another as well. And we look in hope to the future, the glorious appearing of Christ, sitting down in feasting fellowship that's undefiled by any sin in, at the wedding supper of the Lamb. So come, for all things are now ready. We do invite you to the Lord's table, all those who are baptized and who are under the authority of Christ and his body, the church, as you eat the bread and drink the wine with us, you are acknowledging that you are a sinner without hope except in the sovereign mercy of God, that you're trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. So come and welcome to the Lord Jesus. The body of Christ broken for you. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.